Here is the latest Higher Summits forecast brought to you by our friends at the Mount Washington Observatory. Weather above treeline in the White Mountains is often wildly different than at our trailheads. Before you hike, check the Higher Summits forecast at mountwashington.org. Weather observers working at the nonprofit Mount Washington Observatory write this elevation-based forecast every morning and afternoon. Search and rescue teams, avalanche experts, and backcountry guides all rely on the Higher Summits forecast to anticipate weather conditions above treeline. You should too. Go to mountwashington.org or text FORECAST to 603 356 2137. Okay, here's your forecast for Friday, July 21st and Saturday, July 22nd. Friday, mostly in the clouds under mostly cloudy skies with rain showers, possibly falling heavy at times in the afternoon and scattered afternoon thunderstorms with a high in the lower 50s. Winds will be blowing at a southerly direction at 15 to 30 miles an hour, increasing to 30 to 45 mile an hour winds with gusts up to 55 miles per hour. Uh, So those winds are pretty significant. Uh, Friday night, in the clouds with rain showers, possibly falling heavy at times early, and isolated thunderstorms with a low in the upper 40s, with winds south shifting southwest at 30 to 45 miles per hour, with gusts up to 50 miles per hour, decreasing to 15 to 30 miles per hour. And Saturday... In the clouds with rain showers, slight chance of afternoon thunderstorms with a high in the lower 50s. Winds southwest shifting west at 15 to 30 miles per hour. Alrighty, have a great weekend, everybody. How's it going? 114? Good. We're in Danvers, Mass. 114. We're going to Liberty <laughs> <Mall>. <laughs> it is. 114 is probably the worst highway in America. Yeah. Just, yeah. I, yeah. My grandparents lived off of 114 by the old... Remember the old Grossman's? I don't know if you remember that. I do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they lived like up in the mobile home park up there. So I would... I was a young person driving there quite a bit, so I, I, it is a horrible road, but I got, I got good at driving because of that. 
it's, oh yeah it's just so prone to accidents and there's no easy way off of it yeah yeah 114 yeah hey top of mind like I know you you just did the forecast and everything yeah. um but top of mind for me I just want to remind the listeners um yeah definitely pay attention to the forecast but um I want to get some more like reviews and five star reviews on Apple Podcasts. So if you um, haven't given us a review or given us like five stars on the Apple Podcast app, we're at we're at four point eight stomps. So I don't know what happened to that two tenths of a a score. But if, if the listeners could do us a solid and, and throw some throw some reviews up there, only positive though. If you have anything negative to say, just email stomp. <laughs> don't don't put a review up. Well, it might be uh, related to the. The listener feedback we got from the next uh, sec- section here. <laughs> oh, Stomp is fired up. Look out. Hey, how uh, how many reviews are up there? Oh, I don't know. Probably like 30 or 35, maybe. Huh. Interesting. I would think. Yeah. So I think we have like a total of like 100 people that have like clicked on the stars, but like people that have actually written reviews, I, I think there's like 30 and they're all, all pretty good. So yeah. nice. Super cool. Very good. Um, All right. So then um, we got the weather this weekend stomp. I didn't get a chance to uh, look too deeply, but I think we're a go for this weekend. It looks like it's going to be a little better than it has been the last couple of weekends. Uh, Sunday in particular, but Friday into Saturday, still that lingering chance of thunderstorms. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing new there. I'm going to be out there. But I think Sunday's going to be the the winner of the day uh, of the weekend. Yeah, finally we got a good weekend yeah. day. So. Hopefully, possibly even um, hitting the uh, the river. We never know if the water gets down oh. a little more. It's still moving pretty fast. Mr. and Mrs. Stomp on the float. Look out. Yeah, we're, we're dying to get out there. It's, it's like the summer's almost over, for goodness sakes. I saw something on Facebook actually come up. It was in Mrs. Stomp's like memories. It was like three years ago today, me and Mr. Stomp were on the river and you guys were like <laughs> laying on your stomachs facing each other, which was hilarious. And then there was a second picture where you guys were like kissing each other. Like, <laughs> Love on the river. Oh, God. Yeah. All right. So uh, welcome to episode 114 of the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast. Uh, we are a podcast about hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains. We also spend a lot of time talking about history, trail maintenance, and forest management. So this week we have a great guest joining us. His name is David Govatsky, and he is the co-curator of the White Mountains Museum at Plymouth State University. He is a former U.S. Forest Service employee. He's a volunteer trail maintainer and an expert in old growth forests. So um, some of the forest in the White Mountains actually was spared by the, the timber barons and there's little pockets all over the place and David knows all about them. So he was kind enough to sit down with us to talk about a wide range of uh, topics, including his involvement in the 1967 Cog Railway accident. Uh, He gave us some advice on where to find local old growth forest within the White Mountains. Uh, He gave us, um, you know, background on some of his experience in the Forest Service. He talked about the Weeks Act and a slew of other topics. So all this plus recent hikes on Mount Madison, Mount Adams. Stomp was on Acteon Ridge this weekend. Plus, we got some recent search and rescue news, including a near tragedy on Cannon Mountain. So I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. Let's get started. All right, Stomp. So we got some listener feedback. Yeah. Stomp is a little fired up. So um, why don't you just, you know, 
state your a case. A little bit, a little bit fired up. Uh, it's, it's rare that we get feedback, actually, which is a good thing. But um, an email came in a couple days ago from a listener, and it says, Hey, guys, love the show. I have to say, though, spending the first minute or two going over the weekend forecast when it's a podcast and probably 95% of listeners in the long run will be listening long after that weather has passed may be the absolute worst way to start a podcast if you're trying to attract new listeners. The only thing more boring than the weather is listening to someone talk about what the forecast was weeks, months, years ago. Most people checking out a new podcast tune out within the first few seconds, minutes, so that's not a great start. I do think it would be better, uh, a perfect ender though. So just my unsolicited two cents, keep up the good work. (laughs) You're relegated to the end of the show now, Sean. You're done. (laughs) Oh, yeah. oh, I didn't even make that connection, but you know, I yeah. took it. Yeah, it's funny. It's a funny thing. I mean, with, without, you know, skipping over the obvious thing, just, you know, press fast forward and you're, you're past it within two clicks. Um, I mean, we did put a lot of thought into the position of this and, um, you know, it is a, a sponsor uh, position as well. So there's discussion with the sponsors as well. And um, it was sort of a, a joint effort to come up with the idea. And since we are sort of an educational, informational depot for hiking, I think there isn't uh, a more important topic than the weather. So I thought it was a funny email. And uh, I just wanted to get your take on it. And, I, you know, we if the listeners want to send messages to us and let, let us know what their take on it is as well, that'd be fun. But uh, what do you think, Mike? I think I think it's fine. I mean, just fast forward if you don't like it. And, you know, at the end of the day, like, it's great to get new listeners. But, like, we don't I – mean, we do look at the downloads and everything like that. But ultimately, I feel like, you know, from my perspective, I just do the podcast to, to shoot the – shoot the bull with you and totally. on once a week and then we just put it out in the ether and if people like it they like it if they don't they don't but sure. I would say maybe what we could do is there's one thing that I had originally when we talked about this idea that you would just read the weather report um, live and then I would react to it and maybe I can try to make it like funny or th- throw some jokes oh. in but I don't know I, th- I yeah not not this week Oh yeah, 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 yeah. We'll, we'll figure yeah, I mean, just so people know, we're we're recording uh, Thursday night. So when you're listening to this Friday morning or Saturday, it's released Friday morning, the next morning. So it's really tricky getting that report tapped into this. And uh, but I guess we could try to do that. That'd be fun. Yeah, it's okay, Stomp. I think I like it. But honestly, it's like, like even it. if it was placed at the end, if somebody's not interested in hearing the weather at the beginning, they're not going to listen to it at the end. <laughs> true, true, true. Also, um, the, the the person that wrote this, like, no, all cool. We oh, love totally. you. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's good feedback. Yeah, oh, I don't really love you. I don't know you, but I, you're a nice person, I'm sure, and we appreciate the advice. So. Yeah, no question um, about it. Thank you. Very good. All right, Stomp, I wanted to just start off with... Um, a recent search and rescue um, since we got a bunch of these. So I figured I would just hit this one up that happened on Cannon Mountain over the weekend mm, because a big one. it sounds like it was a near miss here, young, young hiker. So um, yep. this was on July 15th. So I think this was maybe Saturday. I can't remember the day. 9 p.m. fishing game uh, was made aware of an injured hiker near the Kinsman Ridge Trail on Cannon. Solo hiker reported that he had lost the trail and he was trying to make his way back to the summit of Cannon Mountain so that he could find the trail. Um, 
and he fell off a ledge landing on rocks about 20, 30 feet below. So during the fall, this hiker suffered serious upper body injuries. Uh, The injured hiker advised that he was currently situated on another rocky ledge that was too steep to move in any direction. So conservation officers were able to get some ATVs up there and they got the Pemi Valley Search and Rescue Team responding. They were able to access the summit by ATV Mm-hmm. Um, so the first team of rescuers started towards the hiker's location around 1045. So it's dark. So this kid was, yeah, it was dark. Yep. The kid's waiting for two hours almost. By 1115, they had made, vo- over two hours, they had made voice contact, but it was really steep and thickly vegetated terrain. Mm-hmm. So the team was not able to get to the hiker until around midnight. So actually it was three hours. Right, right, right. Um, kid was on a ledge. He was... Um, I guess that the team was able to get to him and stabilize his injuries. They got a harness on him and they were able to lower him down to more stable ground. Um, luckily, the hiker was able to sort of pull it together and bushwhack with the assistance um, of some of the team members mm-hmm. about 500 feet back up to Kins- Kinsman Ridge Trail. And he hit the final half mile up the Kinsman Ridge Trail to the summit of Cannon. And then they were able to... Um, I guess, get a tram car to the summit to bring supplies and bring the hiker back down the mountain. So this is all 3 a.m. So 9 p.m. he calls. By the time they get him down, it's 3 in the morning. Um, And, um, you know, he made it safely out, but visibility was poor. Thick clouds, rain, lightning had arrived. So it sounds like a nightmare. Mm -hmm. Uh, 21-year-old kid from Marlboro, Mass., um, He's self-described inexperienced hiker that learned of this hike from a co-worker. He wasn't well equipped for a day hike and he lacked a map, light source, and rain gear. So um, Fishing Game basically puts out in their 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 release here that steady rain had fallen over the month of June and into the early parts of July and that trails are ridiculously slippy, slippery and have led to many injuries. So yeah. um I don't know, Stomp, how do you get the message out to these young people about basic safety? I, I don't know. It feels like this is just the price of doing business with hiking at this point is you're going to have these young people coming out here and getting in trouble. Yeah, where was he from again? Marlboro, Mass. Okay, so. Yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah, I blame Jake and Julie for this because that's where they're from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a difficult problem. Um, I mean, we're, we're all trying our best and um, certainly the media covers these events and you know you hope that kids are exposed to some agency like amc or some outdoor uh, experience that would give them some education along the way but yeah it's yeah. it's tough to catch everybody obviously yeah because think about it if he didn't have like a cell phone connection to call say he falls and he gets knocked right. out he's, right he's and then or he loses his phone like yeah. it's hypothermia and then you know, or maybe it's not, maybe it was warm enough, but still, he's not going to fare well. Sure. Yeah. Especially if it was a serious brain, you know, head brain injury. Yeah. So, yeah. It seems like we just, we have a handful of these every year. Like last year, it was the two young men that went over by the watcher and were on those cliffs. So mm-hmm. it just seems like that area, that area is just begging for trouble sometimes. Yeah, it sure is. Let me just look over what he had for gear again. So, lacked a map, lacked light source and rain gear. Okay, so in that type of weather, I mean, clearly a light source would be handy, especially if it's if you go off trail and you end up in the dark. I have no idea where this was. Um, I'm assuming it would be from that overlook that faces Franconia Ridge up to the summit, and then you have that open, yep. open face, which is not the easiest 
portion of trail to 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 navigate, especially if it's dark. Yeah. But boy, yeah. and I can definitely see like I, I've seen people up on Cannon before too, like just coming down from the platform to get down to that lower section there. Like it's not obvious all the time. Like you can keep going straight. There's a there's like a a 180 turn right. there that you can keep going straight and get in trouble. Like there's all kinds of mm. scenarios up there, especially in the dark when you don't know what you're doing. Like that's another thing. Is this is a late start again. Clearly, he started late if he was up there at nine o'clock. I would I would assume so. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, the other big thing, just lacking a map. But yep. hopefully he's okay and yep. uh, he'll be back to hit it again with a little more knowledge and experience. Yeah. I mean, hopefully 20 years from now, like, he'll be the expert hiker that can tell people the story about how he learned how to consider being safe. No doubt about it. No question. Yeah. And uh, just so yeah. people know, I mean, that that is some thick, thick crumb holes, and it's steep as hell off that summit um, on the notch side facing Franconia Ridge. So that's that's some tough terrain to have to pull somebody out of or even to get out through yourself. So hats off to the rescue team, and um, that's tough work up there. Yeah. All right. On a more positive story about young people, a six-year-old becomes the youngest girl to climb Devil's Tower. So this is a six-year-old Massachusetts girl. Right? Super cool. Um, yeah. Look at her. She's cute. She got no teeth. She got no no front teeth. She's living no teeth life. and no fear. Uh, no teeth, no fear. That's true. So for those of you that are unaware of this, this is the Devil's Tower is in Wyoming. It's just like basically this. Um, granite slab that um there's no trail to get up there i think you can only climb it with ropes and this kid is her name is alice gale she's six years old yeah and she said it wasn't scary for me um so her and her brother tristan climbed the devil's tower with their parents (laughs) uh valere and stephanie so uh that makes her the youngest female on record to scale the 867 foot tower according to the National Park Service. That's pretty neat. Um, I mean... And they interviewed her. She said the accomplishment felt good, but not that proud. So, Huh. Funny. That's about... That's just shy 100 feet, 200 feet of, say, Cannon Cliffs. So just to give you perspective. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like... It's basically like if you just had... If you wrapped Cannon Cliff into... Cannon Cliffs into like a cylinder... And there's no trail up to it. You just have to go up there. So the parents are, um, they're from, f- they're, they're French, but they moved to Falmouth about 15 years ago and they work, they're oceanographic scientists. So they must work at Woods Hole. So they loaded up the RV and set off on an adventure. And um, I guess they're going to do some more stuff. Hmm. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, I didn't even know it was climbable. Um, if you look up websites, it's a rare in igneous rock. So basically, it used to be a, a volcano, and that was the inside of the the shoot of the volcano. Whereas the, you know the the walls of the volcano fall away. That's what was inside. Um, but yeah, it's sort of news to me. But um, I thought it was more of like a, a less stable. Uh, type of rock, but apparently it's climbable. Yeah, yeah. They said it's. it's a, they took a five point nine difficulty route, and that's um, so cool. They said that typically makes it even challenging for adults. So yeah, it's pretty neat. <laughs> that's awesome. I'll put the links in the show notes for her, and she banged out a handstand at the uh, the bottom before she went up. So good huh. for her. Must be a fan of uh, Eric Todd Sweet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, she actually she did one at the bottom, and then she did one on the top. Oh, yeah, so. 
Not even Eric does that. That's incredible. No, He's no, got but, competition. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> the top of this thing has got like grass growing on it and stuff. It just it doesn't. It doesn't look like I would have thought it would look like, but it's cool. Interesting. Yeah. Um, all right, Stomp. I got something for you. I got to share on the screen here. I want to get your reaction for a minute. Okay. I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm going to. Um, Put this in the show notes. I thought this was hilarious. So this is a video of a father, and he's got his little kid, and he throws her in the water, and then she's got these like things in her arms. Did you see Those that? Little you quick. Um, yeah. No, I haven't seen the video. Yeah. So watch what happens to the floaties when he throws her in. So he's on a boat. He throws her in, and the. Fl- <laughs> So the girl's got these floaties wrapped around her biceps and the father throws her like maybe 10 feet and she's in the into the water. And then the little floaties are donuts on her arms and she just puts her arms out and she just falls right to the bottom. Oh, so man. they did save her. She didn't drown. But like, just in case, like it's a reminder, if you're using those swimmies on your kids, just be careful. Like don't throw them in the water because those things are not reliable. Yeah. Arms down. Yes. Wow. That's exactly. scary. Yeah. Um, and then another scary story here, Stomp, that you put out is a free soloist fell 500 feet yeah. and um, and died. She was um, hiking, yeah, Blitzen Ridge. So this was on July 9th. Mm-hmm. And um, the woman died falling 500 feet while free soloing, which is a 5.4 ridge on the... Um, Ceylon Mountain in the Rocky Mountain National Park. Mm-hmm. Yeah, five four technical climb. Um, it, this was a couple of weeks back, but I thought it was just worth mentioning um, that these free solo climbers um, are definitely pushing the boundaries here, and this is inevitably what can happen. Yeah, yeah. This this lady was a like a trail runner, avid trail runner, yoga instructor. She got into the, um, you know, the free solo stuff as well, but it's very dangerous. Mm. I just, I don't recommend it for anybody. Yeah. What do you think it is? Like this invincibility thing going on or what? I don't get it. I don't know. I think there's certain people that have just a screw loose when it comes to this stuff. (laughs) How about, would you say the same thing of say, um, base jumping and all that? I think so, but also I think a lot of people would say the same of us, like just doing our, our weekend hiking stuff. So it's that assumption of risk? That yeah, I think so. I think that people like, you know, they chase the adrenaline, like, yeah. you know, some people think nothing to jumping out of a plane and other people think it's like right. uh, the craziest thing ever. So we're just looking at, we're just looking at a different, somebody's doing something different. Sure. They would probably argue that like, you know, we, we do everything pretty safe and that, you know, we're repeating these climbs over and over again with ropes so that we know exactly what we're doing until we go solo. So who knows? Right. Speaking of assumption and risk, just briefly, I've been watching videos of these people that getting to get into the exclusion zone of Chernobyl and go hike through it. And they have to swim through bodies of water to get to these certain trails and roads to get into Chernobyl and they go in with their Geiger counters and the, the Geiger counters are like you know, redlining They're to pinned. the limit. Yeah. I mean, it's insane. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> you got to see yeah. some of these videos. It's insane. Yeah. I do like urban exploring. So that would be something that was cool. It's, it's wild. Like one of the videos was yeah. two hours long and they go straight to the Ferris wheel and all this other stuff. It's very cool, but 
I wouldn't take the risk. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how much you can get exposed to that stuff and, and still, you know, you get cancer 20 years from right, now. Exactly. All right. Uh, Next article here, Stomp. I'm assuming you pulled this as a feel-good article. So this this is, um, yeah. Oh, this was from last year, though, Stomp. Did you know that? Oh, oh, it says July 8th, 2023. Oh, okay. Yeah, but they reposted it. Oh, it's a repost. Sorry, everybody. Stomp got got swindled. (laughs) It's scammed. Anyway, this 71-year-old... So it's an article about a 71-year-old guy. The guy looks like he's 171, honestly, yes. but he's 71, and he completed the Pacific Crest Trail, which is honestly, that's not that old to be doing these these two hikes. But, sure, um, yeah. The interesting thing about this one is that he broke out in a song uh, when he finished, and his name is Paat, mm-hmm. which I don't know what that means. That's his trail name. Paat. Pa'at. So, well, congrats. Um, good for him. And this is a good video of him. He looks like Santa Claus. So I'll send I'll send it over. Yeah. Oh, oh well. It's still uplifting. It still makes me feel warm in my belly. <laughs> it does. And the interesting thing here is they say that only 14% of people who attempt the Pacific Crest Trail succeed. I always hear the Appalachian Trail is one in five, so that's 20%. So mm-hmm. sounds about right. Yeah. Wow. Well, anyway. Sorry, gang. Yeah. Dropped the ball on that one. That was a fail. Nice move. The last time I look at the the date at the top. I'm going to have to read these things. Seriously. Hey, what's that sound? It must be time for the pop culture segment with Mike and Stump. Pop culture news. We haven't talked about pop culture stuff. Stomp. I'm in the middle of uh, the summer when I found out I'm pretty. I'm binging that. I love it. Oh, yeah? Um, but I have watched one episode of The Witcher. So you want to talk about Henry Cavill, Cavill splitting from The Witcher. Wait, so you just started The Witcher? Or are you on season three? No, no. I'm wa- well, I'm watching the... So I'm, I, it's very complicated. Yes. Yeah, so okay. <laughs> I'm watching the Tour de France. Okay. So every night I watch the, the world feed from the Tour de France. Then if I have time, I'm watching The Summer Where I Became Pretty, which is on Amazon. And then um, one day I had free time and I was like, I'm going to watch the first episode of The Witcher just to see if it's good. And then that's next in the queue. So I got Tour de France, The Summer I Turned Pretty, and then The Witcher is up next. Mm. So I've only watched one episode, so don't spoil me. Well, I, I honestly, I think you you should probably read the books first because that's probably why Henry Cavill is leaving because he was really disappointed from interviews that I've seen recently that they're going way astray of the original material and uh, that's why he's signing off apparently and uh, I guess he's being replaced by Liam Hemsworth which is uh, Thor's brother there he was in Mockingbird and all that stuff with uh, Jennifer Lawrence so I tend to agree it's like uh, in this newest season he's almost uh, a side story to uh, other characters so um, I'm still enjoying some of the effects and things like that and he's fun to watch but uh, yeah so he's out Um, I won't say anymore yeah yeah I think like yeah episode one was definitely very Siri focused but yeah yeah, I think he's fantastic so I don't know Liam Hemsworth he's a good actor so we'll see what happens 
So, or Chris Helmsworth, whatever one it is. Maybe he he has the gravitas. Yeah, who knows? Is he the one that was that got divorced from Miley Cyrus? Yes. That's correct. Do you know, oh, this is this is other breaking pop culture news. Miley Cyrus is apparently in a cult. She's in some weird cult in Hollywood. Oh, yeah? Is this a joke? Yeah. No, seriously. <laughs> she got like wrapped up in some cult. She's with these two friends and they're in the cult. It's like it's like one of those pretty girl cults. Like, wasn't there one, one of those like the Nixium cult or something yeah, sure. like that? I don't know if it's like that, but she's in one of these pretty girl cults. Interesting. So see what goes on. We'll keep an eye on that. Wow. Valkluse gear. Do you have a sweat problem? Sweat can be extremely uncomfortable on the trails, plus sweat is a serious risk factor. As your clothes get wet, your core temperature can dramatically fluctuate, and this can result in hypothermia, heat exhaustion, and dehydration. We've got good news at Slasher for you. There is a piece of gear that solves the sweat problem. Valkluse's ultralight ventilation backpack frame. The frame is a backpack accessory that easily installs in your favorite pack size 15 liters to 65 liters and creates a ventilating airflow gap between you and your pack. It's also ultralight, weighing less than a pair of socks at just over three ounces. Whether you're hiking in hot or cold temps, the ultralight ventilation backpack frame is a real game changer when it comes to airflow and ventilation. So visit fauclusgear.com to order an ultralight ventilation frame today. Use promo code SLASHER, S-L-A-S-R, to enjoy a $5 discount. Plus, you let them know that Mike and Stomp sent you. We have uh, stickers and stuff like that at Ski Fanatics off of Exit 28 in Campton, New Hampshire, or at Spinner's Pizza Parlor in Andover off of Dascom Road in Mass. And uh, Andover. Andover, yes. And uh, what else is new? Um, yeah, advertisers, if you guys have any messages you want to get out or any merch you want to plug, just get a hold of us and you can show you our uh, plans for advertising with Slasher. Excellent, Stomp. Yeah. And then now is the part of the show where we talk about what we're drinking. Are you drinking a beer tonight? I've got nothing. I'm absolutely parched sitting in my basement <laughs> wishing I had okay. a beer. Well. I am drinking a, I'm back to Fat Mike, so everybody's happy around the house. Um, Lord Hobo is the name of the brewer, and I'm drinking an Angelica Hazy IPA, which is pretty good. Nice. Yeah, they admit they yeah. do a good job for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Nice. Um, recent hike stomp, where you been? I, I got out with my cousin last weekend, and we hit Acteon Ridge. First time um, he's been there, and first time in a while he's been out, so I didn't want to kill him. And we were contemplating doing a backpack overnight up on the Grand Traverse, but the weather just was not looking good. So we decided to just kill ourselves up on Acteon. So I took him up some really just extreme, steep, sort of obscure routes up through these giant boulder fields and erratic fields that are really nice up to Bald Knob and um, just poked around up there for a while. You could spend a whole day just poking around those boulder fields, Mike. It's such a cool spot. Yeah, yeah, those erratics all in that area there, mm. it's just, it's crazy. Yeah, it's really neat. And if people are interested, you can you can do some research to find how to get to Bald Knob. And then from there, it leads all the way over to Jennings Peak if you wanted to really do a, a long day bushwhack. So we've talked about it before, but it's just a beautiful area. Yeah, now we didn't, when we went, we did not do Bald Knob. We skipped past that because it was just like, there was no views, right? Are you thinking Jennings Peak? 
or sandwich well, donut? No, when we did, when we went out to, when me, you, and Jimmy went out in that, we went in that area, right? Oh, that was Algonquin Trail. Oh, that was Algonquin. Yeah, so that's off of Sandwich Notch Road, Algonquin Trail, which is another one I want to get to really soon. It's that's probably my favorite. Oh, hey, Bubs. Daphne's here. Um, hey, Daphne. Yeah, so we we've never been over there, Mike, but it's such a short thing. It's literally half mile to hit these Boulder Fields. Uh, it's so awesome. Well, well, yeah. I have to. I want to get back out on that. Um, I want to get back out in that area anyway when there's good views. So we'll yeah. have to. We'll have to remember to do that. But I was out this weekend. I was supposed to do a presidential traverse with my sister-in-law on Sunday. Yeah. But the weather was horrible. Um, so I was like, to Marissa, my sister-in-law, I was like, I'm bailing. Mm-hmm. She was like, I'm bailing too. So we like bailed together. So it was like, you know, sometimes you do that Didn't with feel it. bad. You, neither one of you wants to be the first, but then when, when somebody <laughs> finally says something, they're like, oh, thank God. Exactly. Um, so I was like, let's just do it this, this upcoming weekend. So I just, I looked at your weather report and I was like, there's a three, four hour window in the morning where I can, I can get some views. So I just went up and like tested the first part of the presidential reverse. So I just banged out Madison and Adams just to see what my time was going to be. So I could, I could tell Marissa. So it worked out well, hmm. got up there super quick. I think I got on trail at six and I was on, I hit Madison. Then on Adams, I was, I was on Adams before nine o'clock. So I was cruising, but beautiful views up there. Ton of people on, um, at Madison hut ton of people there really? and then a bunch of people doing presidential traverses i don't know what happened later in the day because when i got when i got down to the car it started pouring out so i don't know if they were getting hit in on mount washington and monroe and jefferson Yikes. but there, a ton of people were doing a traverse on saturday so i don't know if they made it or not but hmm. they probably had to deal with some weather yeah i bet yeah i mean this weekend should be a little better i think we're trying to get out of this weather cycle but it's been crazy yeah, I'm going for round two. Me and my sister-in-law were going um, on Saturday morning at the crack of dawn. So if anybody's up on the presidentials, uh, take a look for us. We'll be we'll be cruising. Wow. Yeah. Good luck. Yep. Yep. All right. Stop. So next next uh, sponsor here. Yeah, we have Seek the Peak. They just had their big fundraiser for the uh, Mount Washington Observatory this past weekend. Uh, so Seek the Peak returns this summer. And um, next summer as well. That's why we're reading this a few more weeks. So it's the classic Mount Washington hikeathon. So the annual gathering of New Hampshire's hiking community is nonprofit Mount Washington Observatory's largest annual fundraiser. Hikers raise funds, earn gear, and celebrate at an apres. Apre hike party. I always want to say Apre ski party. Uh, with live music, food trucks, epic gear raffle, beer garden, vendors, and people who care deeply about the trails and an inclusive hiking community. It all takes place at the base of the Mount Washington Auto Road. Our hike and make friends option supports all ability levels, pairing hikers with similar goals for a trek that's right for you. All hikers are welcome to help raise funds for the Observatory's Summit Weather Station and services like the twice-a-day Higher Summits Forecast, educational programs, and research in the White Mountains. Seek the Peak is sponsored by Great Glen Trails and Eastern Mountain Sports. So to learn more about the event for next year, um, check out seekthepeak.org. And uh, before we move on to our excellent guests coming up here, I'm so excited. We do have some notable listener hikes of the week so just tag slasher on your adventure to be considered for slasher's hike of the week and we have uh, a handful here 
A. Folsom did Tux. Easybanks.hikes.nh tackled Sandwich Super Loop. So this this person did 24-ish trails and several peaks. It was a hell of a loop, like everything in Ferncroft and then some up over the sleepers. So it was a pretty crazy post. Steve Summits tackled Ammo to Washington for Seek the Peak. Patrick Smart 603 uh, tackled Mount Israel with Jake Ski 603. A-Bomb Graham, this is a new listener, tagged us, and uh, he was ripping up Ferncroft for 25 miles in and around the sleepers, Whiteface past the Conway Trails, and he just wanted us to know, not a fan of the no-pole ethos. <laughs> Do you know, actually, uh, so that's a good call. I actually um, took my poles this weekend, and I haven't used my poles in like a long time, and I felt a million times better going uphill with my poles, so I'm with him. Who was that that said that, by the way? Um, A-bomb Graham. A-bomb oh, yeah, yeah, I saw that one, actually. Yeah, I'm, I'm right with him. I'm, I'm, all, I'm pro-pole now. Oh, okay, I get you. Well, you know I'm not, for obvious reasons. Yeah. We can talk yeah. about that in some I feel time. like you're the reason I stubbed my toe. <laughs> Because if I had my poles, I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> Assumption of risk. <laughs> oh, my God. Hey, we got a tag for an out-of-state adventure here. It's a just behavior. Um, did the Tour de Mont Blanc. It was an 11-day oh, hike, yeah. 105 miles, uh, multiple countries, and it uh, they took Slasher podcast along in their ear as they hiked along, so that's pretty neat. <laughs> Sounds awesome, doesn't it? That sounds amazing, yeah. Oh, yeah. Brady Girl 1 did Carrigan and uh, made note of some mushrooms that are popping out there. Beautiful pics. Steve Summits, Huntington Ravine. Now, this is an interesting one. So, Steve, we met at some of the events, and he wanted to hit Huntington, but unfortunately suffered a dislocated shoulder and was hemming and hawing about whether he should continue on, but ultimately he decided to turn back. So... Hats off to Steve for probably making the best call. That's not an easy trail by far. Yes. Uh, let's see, two more here. Actually, one more. So Nick Hikes and Plays Guitar tagged us in a location called Sunset Ledge, which is on the Long Trail South uh, from Lincoln Gap. So it's out of state, if I remember, right? Vermont, perhaps? Yes, Long Trail is in Vermont. Yeah, so it's, it was a family hike, and he says it's a great one for little ones. 500-foot elevation and uh, two miles round trip. So if you're out in the area, be sure to take the kids and check that one out. And that's it. Excellent, excellent. So, uh, Stomp, we're going to dump into our um, segment of the week. We've got... Um, David Gavatsky, who is, like I said in the intro, um, you know, really interesting uh, guest. He's got a lot of cool perspectives. So I think the listeners are going to love this. I, I, we, we did an hour with him. I could have done like five hours. So I think let's move into that and then we'll pop back out and uh, do some recent search and rescue news. All right. Time for Slasher's Guest of the Week. Very cool. Very cool. Very, 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 very cool.
All right, David, welcome to um, the Slasher Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing fine. Uh, thanks for inviting me, uh, Michael. Yeah, we appreciate it. We know that you were out doing trail maintenance today. Um, how, how hard was that? <laughs> well, I was out with a Youth Conservation Corps crew from uh, the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. And, uh, it, of course, it was a hot and humid day, high uh, dew point levels, but the once you get in the woods and you're working on trails, it, it just seems to be a lot cooler and there's a little bit of a breeze coming through and uh, other than the smoke that we were getting from the Canadian wildfires, it was uh, just a good day to be out um, yeah. working in the woods. Wow. When you're um when you're doing trail maintenance in these wet conditions, is it from your perspective is it better to be out there when it's wet like this so you can kind of spot the troubled water bars and things like that, or does it not make a difference? Oh, absolutely. In fact, if if you can get out when it's pouring rain, that is the ideal time. If you're checking water bars and it makes um, sense and and erosion or things like that, or, or you know places where you have some drainage issues, and uh, bringing a shovel and a and a grub hoe um, on those days, they're just really perfect and and uh it's it's not difficult work but you can do some amazing things to protect the uh the trail tread by being out there and and um alleviating problems as as they're occurring now are you te- with this group you were with today are you teaching them about trail maintenance is that the, that the goal uh that's the goal yeah it's a youth conservation corps they're employed by the u.s fish and wildlife service and they're um well, they're there for six weeks uh, working in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont and also the Pondicherry National Wildlife Refuge in, in Jefferson. So uh, that's a that's a 6,500-acre um, uh, National Wildlife Refuge, and it's mostly wetland, so it's the bottom of an old glacial lake, so you don't, uh, you don't have too much terrain, and I think we only have two water bars on the, on the 10 miles of trail that we have, so it's fairly flat. Oh, nice. Yeah, we're nice. we're mainly brushing uh, in anticipation of uh, building some bog bridges and replacing some bog bridges over some um, wet areas. Wow, interesting! And do you do do you do trail maintenance year round? Yes, uh, trail maintenance is is year round. We've got some trails that are specifically designed for cross country skiing and snowshoeing, and uh, you know, in the White Mounds, as we all know, there's there's blowdowns that occur year round, and right, right. Uh, and so we always have my my silky saw out with me, and uh, <laughs> and occasionally cutting those blowdowns out and packing the trails down or uh, doing whatever you can. It's funny you mention the silky. The silkies are great. Yeah, <laughs> those are amazing. The silky big boys. That's yeah. my favorite. Yeah, those are incredible. I think I've tools. got four different models, and uh, <laughs> whenever REI puts them on sale for twenty five percent off, I, I'm always quick to buy one. Yeah, awesome. Well, David, we've been chatting a little bit, but why don't you? Uh, so, actually, before you introduce yourself, Stomp, do you want to give a little bit of background? So, you had made contact with David and wanted to get him to come in for a segment. Mm. Can you just sort of give a little bit of background on you know why we wanted to have him on, and then I can ask David to introduce himself? Well, to be quite frank with you guys, um, the listeners uh, asked that we have Dave on, so I just did some poking around on the web, and uh, I had not known of you, Dave, before uh, the listeners sort of honed us in your direction, and I'm glad that we oh, uh, no came kidding. across. Yeah, yeah, this was yeah. completely listener-driven, and um, um, we're just really pleased that you responded and uh, were willing to come on. Uh, so that's it. It's a very simple story. Uh, but uh, looking at your resume, I think the listeners will uh, really enjoy this talk. 
Yeah, so just for the listeners, a little bit about David, just so that he doesn't have to repeat his own resume. But So former U.S. Forest Service employee, worked pretty much all over the country, did end your tenure in the Forest Service here in New Hampshire. And since leaving, you know, you've been up to all kinds of different work around volunteering, trail maintenance, writing, and a few other things that we're going to talk about here. But David, why don't you introduce yourself in a little bit more detail? Uh, sure. Um, yeah, my name is uh, David Kowalski. I, I live in Jefferson, New Hampshire. Um, I worked for the U.S. Forest Service uh, for for my entire career, 33 years working around the country and retired uh, on the White Mountain National Forest on April Fool's Day of 2005. <laughs> uh, you know, when you work for the government, you have to, when you retire, it has to be the first three days of a month. I don't know, some administrative uh, type of an issue. But uh, I uh, since then, since 2005, I've been working primarily as a naturalist, and I've been a, a expedition ship guide in um, Iceland and, and Alaska. I did that for several years, and but I spent a lot of my time, a lot of my summers, uh, working with young people, particularly in the Youth Conservation Corps, um, and I've been doing that since retirement. So, so I. I just enjoy that. And then in September and October, I usually work with uh, Raven Interpretive. They're, they're out of uh, Mount Washington Valley. And uh, it's, it's primarily bus tours uh, that come through. And so I take them out on hikes and we do a drive on the Kankamaugus Highway and uh, we visit various spots. And so it's a great opportunity to meet people from all over the world and to um, show them what we have here in the, in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. It's oh, awesome. Wow. And then when when did you get your first exposure to the White Mountains? My first exposure was when I was 13 years old. I um, I grew up in Connecticut, in a rural part of Connecticut. I was in a 4-H program. It was a 4-H forestry program, so it was a little bit unusual. And we did trail work. Uh, that was our primary function, uh, maintaining the blue trail system in Connecticut. And so as a reward in the... Um, in the autumn, we would we would take a weekend trip, and my first hike was on Welch and Dickey Mountain in the Waterville Valley, and and that remains uh, one of my favorite hikes. And uh, I was so I was great, pretty Dave. well pretty well hooked on that one. Yeah, that's where I live, Dave. I live right in uh, the surrounding community there, and it's it's just like what you said. It's still one of my faves too. Yeah, certainly is, and of course it has that uh, unique jack pine stand on the mountain, and it's all of those you know slabs mm-hmm. of granite ledges and uh, glacial erratics, and and just a just a wonderful hike. And mm-hmm. and after that, I I continued working you know throughout high school and in the 4-H program, um, and visited the huts. My first hut was a uh, Galehead hut, and I just really enjoyed. You know, that experience meeting uh, some of the hut crews and, you know, I was 14, 15 years old. I was pretty young and I was pretty determined that I was going to get a job working for the uh, Appalachian Mountain Club and the hut crew. And um, so I applied when I was 18. I had graduated from high school and I, I went and worked with the Green Mountain Club on their long trail patrol that first summer. And then in you know, we finished up the summer's work and went over to Pinkham Notch Camp. And George Hamilton uh, was in charge of the hut system in those days. And and I had some references. And George says, yeah, we'll hire you. And uh, that was in 1967. And so um, I started working at Pinkham 
And a couple of weeks later, um, we had this terrible accident on the Cog Railway in um, September of 1967. It was one. Of, it was the last train down the mountain, and so um, I was working in the in the kitchen, cleaning up from the evening meal, running the Hobart dishwashing machine, and uh, got the call. Bill Arnold, who uh, still lives up here in the White Mountains in Randolph, um, was the hutmaster, and and said, "Hey, there's been an accident on the mountain, and we're going to." go up and grab some blankets, grab some Stokes litters and first aid equipment and, uh, you know, meet outside here in a few minutes. And so, um, wow. uh, we gathered up and, uh, and, and took our, our vehicles on up to, um, oh, just passed up the, the cow pasture where the old, um, um, a Navy test site was. And we parked there and there's a little cut off trail. You probably all know about it over to the, um, to the Gulf side and, um, you know, on the way we, you know, we got close to the, close to the tracks and we met, uh, you know, a couple people, the walking wounded, you might say that were walking up the mountain. And, um, and so we helped some of them and then we just proceeded on down, um, to where the actual, you know, the, the engine and the, and the car had, had gone off the, um, off cog tracks itself and did our best to, you know, help people out and, and, um, and, and load up some of the bodies that were um, had been killed in the uh, in this terrible accident. And that was that that was that skyline. Wow! You so you were eighteen at this time. Yeah, yeah, I was eighteen. Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah, and I I really didn't have any any first aid training. Uh, I mean, other than basic first aid, which I think was an eight hour course. Um, and I, I later became an EMT, emergency medical technician, and and. Um, and took the uh, wilderness first aid, uh, wilderness EMT course at Solo down in um, in Conway, and uh, mm-hmm. picked up more skills. But it was quite a quite a night. You know, you had you had fog, you had darkness, and you had the smell of the coal smoke um, from the overturned engine there. And you know, people were you know screaming, and people were shouting. There's headlamps. You know, through the smoke and the fog, and 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 uh, yeah, it was quite a quite a night. Wow. Do you so just for mm. the listeners? This is an incident where, I and and Dave, you wrote an article in Appalachia, I think, in 2018, covering this story, right? Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah that, that, that's available online if folks are interested. Yeah. 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 I'll link that in the show notes. But basically, my recollection of the story is is that there was a open question on what caused this, but they ultimately there was like the switch was not fully connected somewhere around 5,400 feet. And that derailed the engine and further derailed the rest of the cars. And I think that the total of eight people died that night, right, or that day. Yeah, that that's right. You know, essentially what happened was you had wow. this engine that was coming down and you had Skyline switch. Uh, and the switch was set to go up on this siding and this the cog was coming down. And so uh, it derailed, essentially. So the teeth got out of the, the cog and it was just running down the tracks now now today uh, the cog is doesn't have those sightings you know they actually have a loop and it's a you know a fully safe system uh that they have now so that eliminated a you know so many steps that were involved in that and so Mm -hmm. the engineer and the person who was supposed to be setting the switch apparently didn't do it 
and uh, and they went over it and it just started racing down the mountain on its own out of terrifying there was there was no way that a brake man or anything could do anything to try to control it because of the you know the gravity of the situation do you do you recall like because my so that happened in 1967 that was a big event my understanding is is that these formal sort of search and rescue organizations, the volunteer organizations that we know that are stood up nowadays, those really didn't get established until like what into the into the nineties. Was there any talk about like getting a more formal search and rescue function in the whites due to that, or did, did it? Well, you know, it was a bit. Um there always was, you know, some level of search and rescue activity. When you when you worked at Pinkham uh, Notch, the AMC camp in the fall, you know, it was typically like once a week or once every eight or nine days, you'd be going out on a on a search and rescue mission. So, the, you know, the AMC had a, a number of people that were working. And at the time, the White Mountain National Forest had what were called ridge runners. Uh, Casey Hodgden was one of them and Chris Hartz and there were several others that were were out there and their job was, you know, safety in the mountains. And so you had a cadre of people that were available to assist. And then you had the, the climbing community that was also available, uh, not to the extent that it, you know, later developed in the 90s um, in, in, in the Mount Washington Valley. So you, you did have that. But uh, it was it was really fish and game department uh, from the state that um, ran the search and rescue programs. Aside from Tuckerman and Huntington Ravine, that the Forest Service had control because of their snow rangers. Brad Ray, uh, Rainy Levitt, um, Levitt Bowie, I should say, Rainy LaRoche, and those people back in the in the sixties were you know they were on the scene all the time. Yeah, I would guess, too, the volume um, of rescues probably wasn't as high. So you could get you could get kind of away with having, um, you know, the, the leveraging the resources that were available for that were working in the mountain areas already, where I think nowadays it's probably just there's a volume that's a little higher with hiking. Oh, yeah. Yeah, certainly the volume is much higher. And uh and also the level of training now, um, you know, whether it's the Androscoggin Valley or the PEMI uh, search and rescue crews, you know, they're they're professionally trained and uh, they've got equipment. Uh, they've got lo- different levels of experience. Uh, New Hampshire Fish and Game is, is um, uh, you know, they have high levels of qualifications and experience, too. So it's it's much better organized now than it was in, in the 1990s. Yeah, yeah, and or nineteen nineteen sixties actually when when uh, is what I should have said when I was there. Yeah, and did you when you were when you got involved in working uh, up in the whites when you were a young person? Um, was it were you consciously saying I'm going to hike the four thousand footer list or I'm going to redline the the White Mountain Guide? Like, can you talk a little bit about like yeah. of the hobbyist yeah. activity around hiking back then? Well, you know, I think I was fifteen years old, and uh, when I was at Galehead Hut. And um, the hut master's name was Steve Jacob. And I, I still remember that. So, you know, I, I admired him. He was kind of a role model. Uh, as Here I am, a young high school kid. And, and uh, I asked him what he did on his days off. And he said, well, I take this, uh, this AMC White Mountain Guide and I've got the maps in there. And I take a red ink pen and I write, I, I basically follow the trails 
that I've hiked and I'm trying to do all of the trails. And he says, then I, I put the date down, um, along that red line. And so that's, that's what I do on my days off. I just love, I just love hiking. And I said, Oh, that's a great idea. And, and so, um, hmm. in those days I started to, um, you know, even as a, a teenager, I started collecting AMC white mountain guides and I got some from the 1930s. Uh, and they were cheap, you know, just a couple dollars at that time. And uh, I started looking at the old trails and I got interested in, in hiking on these old trails and, and doing that. And uh, I just said, I'm going to I'm going to you know, eventually finish all the trails. And I picked up a DeLorme trail map of all of the trails in the White Mountains. And I don't sell it anymore, but, um, you know, it was my favorite. And uh, and then I think it was. Well, it was a long time ago, and um, I got this note from uh, Ed Hawkins. He had heard that I had hiked all of the trails in the White Mountains, and and he told me that there was some kind of an organization called the Redliners, and um, and I, I said, well, that's pretty interesting, and uh, <laughs> and I didn't know that much about it, and I, and I knew there was a you know four thousand footer club because I had I had done that a couple of times, including once with my dog and um, and that. So um, he sent me this this badge, this little certificate, <laughs> and said I had done it. And he asked me, he said, you know, which guide did guidebook did you use? Because you know, the I guess the rule is you have to use the current guide and 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 do all the trails that are in the White Mountains. And um, I actually exceeded that because I there's all of these conservation commissions in various towns that have their own trails that aren't in the guidebook, and you know some of the other trails that aren't there. And I, I would search out these other trails, and so I said, yeah, I was using the. I think it was the 1936 guide. He said, geez, that's way back. And I said, I just love that Civilian Conservation Corps had built all of these really, really interesting trails, you know, like over the Rosebrook Range, for instance. And now, you know, what what do you have on the Rosebrook Range? You got the spur going up Mount Tom and, and that's it. And uh, But there was a whole system of trails. And so I would just love exploring that um, when I was when I was young. Wow. So can we go back in time a little bit? I want to talk about, so we've, we've talked about so the Weeks Act and the sort of the, the growth or the creation of the White Mountain National Forest. And we've, we've sure. done some history segments where we've talked about how, you know, the, the, the lumber barons came in and started buying out land in larger and larger parcels, which sort right. of pushed out the small farmers. And eventually there was backlash because they couldn't buy, you know, the farmers couldn't buy smaller parcels of land over time. And they was clear cutting and erosion issues and all kinds of issues. So um, they would, the backlash for that basically allowed for the Weeks Act to be to be passed, and then eventually the White Mountain Forest was um, was built up. But can you sort of give your own perspective on those early days and, and talk a little bit about the, the the timber industry in New Hampshire and from your perspective, sort of what it was like to go back in, you know, 1900 to 1920 and the changes that happened in the White Mountains? Yeah, um, certainly. Uh, you really want to go back to like 1875 when the first logging railroad came through, and that was the Johns River Railroad out of Whitefield and, and opening up the northern White Mountains. Um, so there, the, the logging had started, and it was primarily um, – for for lumber, I mean, it was the lumber, the spruce timber, and the pine that built a lot of our cities in Massachusetts and and elsewhere in New England, and so you had a lot of this activity going on. Um, 
you had a governor who who basically sold the heart of the White Mountains out just to you know for about twenty five thousand uh, dollars to make some money. So y- you had a timber industry, two different kinds. You had the pulp and paper industry, and they were in it for the long term because you know building these paper machines, you know. Even in those days, they cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, equivalent to millions and millions of dollars. And so, you know, they were they were cautious. They were thinking, no, we need to have a continuing supply of material to, to be sustainable, to keep our people working in that. And then you had the others who were, you know, basically just cutting lumber and bringing the lumber out, uh, the logs out to make lumber as quick as they can. And so you also had a big tourism industry here you had these grand hotels that were scattered all over the mountains and uh, there was a lot of competition here between the white mountains and the adirondacks which had already been declared forever wild Um, and so these hotels uh, for instance the crawford house in crawford notch you know they were seeing their hillsides uh, that were being cut over and and um and later like in 19, uh, 1903, they, they were burned over. You had 85,000 acres of forest here in the White Mountains that burned. And so they were really getting quite concerned about what was happening to their, to their mountains. Um, and to their potential business. And combined with that, you had conservation uh, organizations and you had the the Federation of uh, Women's Clubs uh, that were very instrumental in wanting to protect some of this this forest land. And New Hampshire didn't really have the money to acquire, you know, several hundred thousand acres of land in the White Mountains. Uh, It's it's never been a particularly... uh, a wealthy state for, for doing that. And so you had a, a New England effort, um, mainly centered out of, you know, really, I hate to say it, Boston, that wanted to protect this area. They got together, you know, with business, industry, you know, these women's clubs and recreationists, the Appalachian Mountain Club, the Society of Protection of New Hampshire Forest. And you had a group of people that the stars were aligned. They got together and said, you know, here's what we're going to do. Um, uh, and and they got together and decided that we want to create uh, the Eastern National Forest. You know, the for- National Forest out west had already been declared um, in the 1890s. There were public domain lands that became forest reserves and then eventually national forests. But there were very few in the eastern United States. And so There was this movement, not just in New England, but also in the Southern Appalachians. They got together and um, came up and said, you know, we need to have either a national park or national forest in the east. So you had a congressman from Massachusetts who grew up in Lancaster, New Hampshire. There's a state park name for him, uh, Week State Park that um, basically sponsored the legislation in the House of Representatives. to to create this uh, Weeks Act, and they they tried multiple times over over several years, and in 1910 there was a huge um, fire, the big fire in in Idaho and Washington and Oregon, the big blow up um, that burned millions of acres, and 70 or 80 people were killed on that. And so one of the things that John Weeks did was to say. We're going to also include in the Weeks Act the legislation that will allow cooperative forest fire protection uh, that we can share resources between the states and the federal government. And so this convinced 
the Western con- congress- congressional delegation to to go along with it. And and what Weeks did, you know, because there's always a question about the constitutionality of the federal government buying private land, even though they were from willing sellers. So what Weeks did was to say that this fell under the interstate commerce clause by protecting the headwaters of the four major rivers of New England, the Connecticut, the Saco, the Androscoggin, and um, and the Merrimack uh, River, Pemigewasset, which flows into the Merrimack. And so this is um, this is how it, it passed the Interstate Commerce Clause of the Constitution and became that. And so eventually it passed on uh, March 1st in 1911. The president signed it, and uh, we started creating these eastern national forests. And we got over 40 national forests in the east that were created because of the Weeks Act in about 20 million acres. And uh, and today, the, the White Mountain National Forest is about 806,000 acres of public land. About 50,000 acres is in the, in the state of Maine. Now the the state of the forests in those early days, once once um, land was getting purchased to create the federal yeah. um, forest, you had the, obviously the two types of forestry activity going on with the paper mills and then the uh, kind of the clear cutters. Um, can you talk a little bit because we want to talk about old growth trees and old sure. growth forest? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about like what any of the timber barons thinking in terms of like forestry or um, environmental environmentally conscious around like saving some of these forests or was it just completely clear cut everything and, and that's what we have now? Well, some of them were looking at a uh, you know a longer term. Um, uh, you know, for instance, in, in Livermore uh, and um, up near Mount Kerrigan, I mean, there was a there was an entire village that was set up in a logging railroad that that went up through there. So, yeah, they were looking at that. But, you know, Henry and some of the other big loggers were, you know, mainly just interested in providing, you know, logs for. And, and then basically uh, they would sell the cut over, in some cases burned over land to the Forest Service at um, um, at a reasonable price. In some cases they were, you know, three or four dollars an acre uh, and they had already made, you know, several hundred dollars an acre cutting the timber off. So much of the original forest was cut over, burned over land. But some of the people that were working for the Forest Service at the time, these were the, you know, the the land uh, acquisition teams said, you know, we need to get some of this original forest that had never been cut over or burned over to, you know, be representative samples. And so they went out of their way to, to try to buy some of these areas and they did. Um, and these later became, you know, some of our old growth forests that we have. And are you at liberty to talk about where those are located? Or is oh, that, sure. Is that your sure. secret? <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, in fact, we're having a conference in Moultonboro, New Hampshire. It's the uh, Eastern Old Growth Conference, September 21st through 23rd at the Geneva Point Conference Center. And and listeners are invited to you know check it out on the internet. We have 30 different speakers that are going to be coming, and we have field trips, 10 different field trips to uh, a number of these old growth forests. Um 
so some of the some of the ones that people are most familiar with be would be, for instance, along the Crawford Path. It's the Gibbs Brook Scenic Area, and you start right across from the you know AMC Highland Center. And the reason that was an old growth forest was because you had the Crawford House there, and they didn't want to see their trees cut. They owned it, and it later you know was acquired by the uh, U.S. government uh, for the public. Uh, another place that is is a pretty interesting old growth forest um, is in Mad River Notch, and that would what we know of as Greeley Ponds. And this forest was a, a yellow birch, red spruce, sugar maple forest. And there's two beautiful ponds, Upper and Lower Greeley Ponds, and that's a, a popular hiking trail. And people get up there and they say, "Wow, those are really big trees." And so uh, hmm. you have that old growth forest. Another one is. Snyder Brook Scenic Area in um, in Randolph, right off of Route Two Appalachia Parking Lot. Um, that, that's only thirty six acres, but you can you can really see what the original forest was like. Uh, there's the Bull um, Research Natural Area, and that's down in the Tamworth Wanalancet area. Um, and then you have some of the state lands. I mean, I've, I've got a list of about 20 different old growth forests, but uh, one of the ones I wanted to mention is the Hemingway State Forest, and that's in Tamworth. And there's a place called Big Pines Natural Area, and that, um, that again, is in Tamworth. And there's a wonderful trail that goes through there, uh, and eventually it gets up to a fire lookout called uh, Great Hill. Uh, Dave? Yeah, that's that's not to be confused with uh, Big Pines in Livermore, right? Or off of Waterville? Uh, that's a different one. Yeah, there's only a handful of big big pines down in the Waterville Valley, but those are those are pretty spectacular. They uh, are along that trail. Well, well, this one at, at Big Pines, it it may not be original forest, but the forest is 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 at least a, you know 150 years old. There's a tree. There's one white pine tree there that I measured 155 feet tall. And I think it's like 50. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just amazing. 58 inches in uh, in diameter. And, uh, you know, you, you you strain your neck just looking up at it. And so there's there's these huge white pine and uh, eastern hemlock that are in there. There's some there's even some red oak that are mixed in there. And it's a it's a wonderful place to um, to walk and, and go. Now, in other places in Chatham um, near Intervale, New Hampshire, in the Mount Washington Valley, Mountain Pond. Uh, I don't know if you oh, ever yeah. Mountain Pond. So th- there's a shelter there. It used to be a, a High Country Civilian Conservation Corps cabin on the other side, but that was taken out in the 70s. Uh, but on the north side, just behind the shelter and uphill from, from Mountain Pond, I mean, that's an incredible northern hardwood forest uh, that's in there. Um, in Franconia Notch, there's, there's two old growth forest in particular that are really nice one is really easy you can actually be on the on the on the bike path uh and to go through that it you you'd want to start at lafayette brook campground if you can find a place to park there or or go down to um uh to the next spot down to the basin parking and you can park there and just work your way back towards lafayette brook and that's all old growth forest uh that is in there and those are it, Yellow birch trees are just huge, and it's just a wonderful walk to go along there. And then further up is Lafayette Brook uh, Scenic Area, 
and that is um, on the north end of, of uh, Franconia Notch, and it's behind on the backside of Eagle Cliff, essentially. Okay. And it's about 280 acres, and that's a bushwhack up there. There's no trail, and and that that forest was never cut. Of course, you had again another hotel. You had the Profile House. So so here's you know the businessmen that are saying you know we don't want to cut these trees here. We want the the, the public to to enjoy them. Wow. Um, and I will say the um, that approach amazing. up Crawford Path, especially like the Mizpah cutoff section there, is that that's old growth forest there, that mossy green section? Yeah, actually, that once you get above um, about twenty seven hundred feet, you start getting into the balsam fir. Yeah, and and balsam fir typically doesn't get to be very old. You know, you might get it up to 100, 120 years, um, and that mispa cutoff. And so, the regeneration that we get there is is often through fir wave regeneration. Um, mm-hmm. And, and fur waves, we could have a whole episode just just talking about fur waves. But you go through these um, zones of death and zones of regeneration that occur there. And you get over to Mizpah, go up the Webster Cliff Trail. You go through a bunch of those um, fur wave zones. So that's how that incorporates it. But it was never never cut. I mean, those trees up there, you know, they, they just live and die and, uh, and they're that. But they typically don't get up to the, to the age that we often consider these old trees to be you know i usually say you know an old growth forest is a essentially a natural forest that it's developed over a long period of time you know 150 200 years that has not shown any signs of uh disturbance whether it's it be forest fires or logging you don't see any roads or any stone walls in there uh and that and and so you have a lot of large trees you have a lot of old trees and you also have a lot of dead trees in there and so you have a lot of that stand structure there so um, we really aren't sure and that's what we're doing this summer is uh, part of this conference is we're trying to figure out what percentage of New Hampshire is old growth forest and right now we're thinking that it's less than one percent of our of our forest area and it, it may even wow. be less than one half of one percent uh, but um, you know, some of this, you can call it original forest that was never cut, like at Snyder Brook. Up at Nancy Pond, there's 1,500 acres of red spruce. I mean, that forest was never cut. It was just too hard to get to above Nancy um, Cascades and, and coming in from the Pemi. They came pretty close to North Cross Pond and Nancy Pond, but never got there. And that's probably our largest stand. And um, uh, so you have that. You have several hundred acres in the bowl. That's pretty large area. And that was uh, protected in, in large part, Juan Lancet um, Outdoor Club and um, and a woman that was, uh, you know, instrumental in, in protecting that. So um, uh, lots of lots of fascinating history about that. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And then the, the forest fire history in the White Mountains, can you talk a little bit about like wh- what's the biggest fires that have, that have happened in the last 50 to 100 years? And it, what's the strategy for, for keeping forest fires at bay? Yeah. Um, well, we're certainly not an asbestos forest. Um, we can have the conditions that, that can burn and we've, we've, uh, we've seen that. So we also have some of those changing conditions. So we have people, um, myself included and, and others that have researched when these fires occurred and, and throughout history and, and why they occurred. But, uh, the, the year that we remember is 1903 and that was the year 
you know, pretty much New England burned. We had a quarter million acres in just New Hampshire that burned. Another quarter million acres over in the Adirondacks and a lot of Maine burned. Um, and that's because we had no organized effort to be able to detect, to communicate the fires, uh, or to, or to control them. I mean, it was pretty much just logging camps. They'd send their crews out to try to prevent the forest from burning up. So, um, yeah, one year, 85,000 acres burned just in the White Mountains alone. And so that alarmed people. And that's why we, we developed the system to, um, you know, to fight these fires. So, you know, throughout the years since then, we haven't had a large number of fires. But um, in the last, well, I'll say 30 years, our season is changing. You know, we, we are not getting the snow that we typically would have on the ground in the hills in, in October. So we're getting a number of fires that are burning in November. And, and that seems to be the time when the leaves are off the trees. You have a lot of sun coming to the forest floor. You get wind and you get people out there that are hunting or hiking and they build a warming fire. And, and the next thing you know is that that fire with the topographies and the, and the leaves that are burning just, you know, goes races on up to the mountaintops. And you've had that, um, you know, a, a series of fires, one off of the Kankamogas, uh, uh highway that, you know, burned 300 acres not, not that long ago. And then you had the uh, Dilly Cliffs fire um, over by Kinsman Notch and, and Lost River. And, uh, you know, we still don't know what, what caused that fire, but, you know, that was a pretty expensive fire to control. So, um, you know, more and more we, we are seeing the conditions when you get low humidity, you know, below 35% relative humidity, you get a temperatures 80 degrees and you get some, some winds, but that particularly that low humidity, you know, this, the forest can burn. Um, it probably won't be burning for a while because we've had so much rain that, uh, uh, it's going to take a long time for things to dry out. Wow, that's fascinating. And then it's 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 not like what's happening in in Canada right now. You know, Canada is burning, and uh, you know, we're essentially in in one of those years. They call them El Nino years, mm-hmm. Spanish for for little boy. And this is a particularly strong El Nino year, uh, as opposed to a, a La Nina year, which is the the little girl. The, the El Nino years typically. Um, you get a lot of um, warm water building up on the uh, Pacific, particularly on the West Coast. And so you, you tend to get uh, a jet stream pattern that changes and tends, typically goes you know further north. And then further south, like our area and then down into the southeast, you tend to get a lot of rain that, that's coming in. And so uh, that's one of the reasons that, uh, you know, we're having the situation uh, that we're having. Uh, in addition, you know, it's just longer seasons. I mean, yeah. fire season in California, Southern California, you know, it used to be yeah, October. The fires are pretty well out. You might get some, uh, you know, some windy conditions um, coming in. But but generally it was out. They're just burning 12 months of the year now. And uh, where we we typically would get some big fires that were five or 10,000 acres. You know, we're having fires that are a million acres now and these are you know mega fires and giga fires and and we just don't have the resources to be able to um, to put them out yeah it's scary mm-hmm. i hope that, that that never comes to new hampshire i actually you know we complain about the rain but it, it, that's one of the positives is that we don't have to stress out about you know, right. fires. 
Yeah, for uh, for the most part, and we you know we have we have a, a lot of trained personnel in the in the state of New Hampshire, forest and lands, and uh, you know they've got a, a number of people and volunteers, and our even our fire departments are are now pretty well trained and equipped to deal with forest fires. I wanted to ask you, just changing topics, um, about your involvement as uh, or your involvement in the Museum of the White Mountains. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. In fact, we're going to be having our tenth anniversary of the Museum of the White Mountains at um, Congrats. Yeah, at Plymouth State University. It'll be in in uh, in August. You should. Hey, you don't live that far away. You should yeah. come over for that event. It'll be it'll be publicized. So, uh, yeah, the Museum of the White Mountains um, is an academic uh, associated museum with Plymouth State University, um, and it's a combination of um, you know the historical collections and and we do a lot of um, programs and evening programs, and we have online collections that you can access. You know, photographs, booklets publications maps and and so forth um so it's it continues to grow um we have a a number of members and supporters and uh we're hoping to even expand in the future and uh because there's i i don't know of really any other mountain range in in north america where there's so much interest about whether it's the history, the science, the recreation aspects of uh, of a particular mountain range that you have here in um, in the White Mountains, yeah, there's a mm. lot of characters that were involved in the uh, the early days of the White Mountains. Um, can you do? You, is there anything, any primary sources that that are in the museum, or any documents that really stand out as as being really, really rare or exceptional from your perspective? <laughs> Well, they do have a lot, and and some people have, um, you know, donated, you know, their complete collection of, you know, early um, early materials. Uh, 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 John or Jack Newton was one of those people, and he probably had the largest collection of uh, White Mountain memorabilia and booklets and publications. You know, he had every AMC White Mountain guide, every variation. He had all of the maps and. Um, you know, uh, various other things like that. But a lot of it was uh, ephemeral material. Ephemeral, you know, it's things that would be published and they would relate to a particular event. So a lot of this is is pretty valuable because you can go back and get a snapshot on time, uh, say on a the 50th anniversary of the Weeks Act, uh, uh, for instance, he had a, a fairly large collection of materials and that was held um, that would have been 1961. That was at the Crawford House, and so he, he had a lot of references to that. Uh, what I, my main interest is in old maps, and um, so I'm, I'm just always fascinated by that. And we had a an exhibition. Adam Apt um, was the uh, curator um, of of the maps of the White Mountains, and so you can actually go online and see that collection. You can see the one for the, for the weeks act and also, uh, the 1918, 2018 anniversary of the white mountain national forest. Uh, I was the curator for that. Uh, that's, that's available online. Yeah. The thing I tell people about maps is that 
when you look at a map, you've got a thousand little rabbit holes that you can dive down <laughs> because every every trail yeah. name, every river name, every mountain name, yeah. you know, when you go back in time and you look at the maps, you can see the evolution of the uh, the, the naming conventions of how sure. these were named. You can find out the story about like who these people were that they were named after. Yeah. Sometimes they're named after features, but like I, I love maps and I love diving down into that sort of the history on how things became named the way they were and placed on a map. So it's really awesome. Oh, and, and that's for sure. And I know that there's been a lot of effort in the last couple of years to to look at some of these old names that were on maps that might be uh, culturally offensive. Yep. And uh, I just went through an exercise uh, with, with one organization and we went through 312 different uh, names that were associated. And, um, and, and, and fortunately, we didn't, you know, find things that were especially uh, troublesome or, or, or problems. But you can go to some of those 1930 maps. I mean, there's one up in uh, the Kilkenny area that had a very offensive name, and, and it, was, it was later changed. So, um, you know, working with the U.S. Board of Geographic Names, uh, you know, that's in Washington. It's an agency that tries to standardize our names um, yeah, we, you can imagine what it's like when we have different names for different mountain peaks. You know, we've got Mount Pierce. Some people call it Mount Clinton. Um, some people call it Mount Pierce, and um, and 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 so you have you have those issues. Yeah, and it is interesting. Like I feel like the bar for changing names. One of the things people don't don't talk about is, and I think is important, is the shared history through generations. So you know, like if you talk about like, oh, I hiked whatever Mount Washington fifty years ago, and then you talk to a young person that did the same thing. Like you've got a shared experience through that name over the course of history that carries on. And I understand that there's, you know, perspectives on, you know, when you should or shouldn't change a name. But I think that a lot of times that gets lost is that that common experience over time. Right. And and I know that there's, you know, currently a proposal to change the name of Mount Washington. And, uh, you know, without without going into that, I, I think you really have to look at what it involves to, to make a change like that and and not just in in um, you know a simple name change it's it's thousands of signs thousands oh, yeah. of publications and that and uh, you know we got enough trouble when they did the uh, lidar survey of Mount Washington it it, it, it came it's not six thousand two hundred eighty eight but you know six two eight eight is like a magic number it can yes. never be changed and in this particular case, they didn't change it, even though the mountain is not 6,288 feet high. All right. We'll edit this one out. We'll edit okay. that part. <laughs> we don't want to start any, any big controversies. Yeah. Well, there were other that, surprises, but, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, Crazy. Uh, you know, it's important, though, for, for science, and, and LIDAR is one of those things, to, you know, be able to accurately measure the heights of mountains. You know, use transits and barometers and estimates and things like that but now we've we've got some pretty 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 accurate things to do but there's still discoveries to be made and um and people are are making them and so uh, it's it's good to see that too 
Yeah, it is. And David, I appreciate you taking the time. Like we're we're about 45 minutes in. Stomp probably has about a million questions, so we'll keep him under control. But I'm going to hand it over to him to see if he has anything else that he wants to cover with you before we close out. But this is awesome, and I think we're going to have to have you back in again. I could talk to you for hours. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> I'd be, I'd I be really appreciate to, it. Happy to come back. It, it, I mean, it's fun to share information and also to learn from you too. Yeah, I, I just have three or four quick questions. So um, we have the the quote unquote new growth coming as we age along with the uh, the trees here. So what can we expect uh, for composition uh, in this new growth? If you're if you're saying that ninety nine percent is new growth, uh, what will we see say a hundred years from now? Because as a bushwhacker, I see a lot of birch, and you know I, yeah. I understand that they're short lived. So will we see the giants again? Well, uh, the new growth is what we call regeneration. That's uh, that's mm-hmm. the term that we use. And and so what you have once you get you know above a certain you know elevation out of the managed zone, you have natural disturbances. And so whether that is you know large blowdowns that create those sunny conditions where you get this new growth or regeneration coming in, you're still going to get paper birch, which is our our state tree. Um, yeah. You'll still have that. But uh, what we saw after, let's say, the logging, the historic logging period from 1880 to roughly 1940, uh, where the spruce, um, you know, was cut out and the softwoods were cut out. And we ended up getting a lot of paper birch coming in and a lot of red maple and and trees like that. But if you look in in Aspen, for, for instance, but if you look now in the understory, you're getting fir and spruce coming in now right. what happens though is we have some insect and disease pests that are that are coming in that are affecting it our biggest one that we have in terms of numbers of trees that are that are killed is the balsam woolly adelgid and and that is a problem primarily um below 2700 feet in elevation and particularly in in coas county it's 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 killing a large number of trees you go into for instance, you drive in the Bretton Woods area and driving up the base station road up to the Cog, you see a lot of dead trees up there. And that's that balsam woolly adelgid, um, a species that, you know, came in from elsewhere and it, it's it's killing a lot of the trees. Mm. We are um, about to have in, in throughout the White Mountains, I'm, a, I'm afraid to say, the emerald ash borer. And um, that's a that's a species of insect that attacks ash trees and it, it probably wipes out 98% of them. Um, okay. So we could lose our ash component. Um, and and we have a number of these other exotic species that are coming in because the trees are stressed. You know, we, we whether folks believe it or not, you know, we, we've got a change in the climate and it, it whether it's a degree or two, it's all it takes was to um, to stress trees and, and you get some drought years or in some cases you get too much rain, um, the health of those trees is affected. So uh, right. I think in the long term, you know, we're going to we're going to see more of the same um, in the sugar maple forest. As long as we can have good sugar maple regeneration coming in, we'll see the yellow birch and um, and sugar maple coming back. Okay, excellent. Um, are you familiar familiar with that um, ash that's up by Peaked Hill Pond? 
that old one that's on the way up. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that area. Um, I am. I that's that's There's a great one trail. That's, it looks like it's dying, but it's massive. Yeah, uh, I recall seeing that. I did that a couple years ago. That trail, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know what the cause of that is, but we do. I know that. Uh, the larger ash trees can survive the emerald ash borer for longer periods of time. Uh, but, you know, if if you go back up to Peaked Hill Pond and if you see any um, any holes in the tree and they're shaped like the letter D as in Delta, uh, yep. that's an exit cavity from the emerald ash borer. And if you wow. see any woodpecker activity mm-hmm. on it, that's, that's a pretty good indicator of that. So... Sure. You know, as a forester, I was trained as a forester and a silviculturist. So I, even today, 18 years after retirement, I am out there looking at the undersides, for instance, of hemlock trees, hemlock branches, to see if there's hemlock woolly adelgid. I'm, I'm looking at the balsam fir. I'm looking at the emerald ash, uh, the ash trees to see if there's emerald ash borer in it. I'm looking at butternut trees, and I'm looking at basically any tree that I see that has, you know, the potential for, for health issues, just so that we can have this early detection um, of what's going on. Okay. Yeah, I just have a few more. Uh, this is fascinating. <laughs> have you ever met my personal hero, Joe Dodge? Yes. Uh, yes. Really? Could you could you speak to him briefly? Well, you know, I was just a young a young whippersnapper and. Uh, <laughs> You know, George Hamilton had 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 worked with him, and you know he just come come in, and I'm you know serving dinner, and uh, and 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 he's in the he's in the crowd. He you know he has this reputation as being you know somewhat of a cantankerous individual right, right. and using a lot of swear words, but I, I never experienced that around him, and I I really didn't know of his importance at the time and his. Um, and his history and, and really developing the, um, you know, the, the, the entire HUD system the way it is in the 19, 1930s and 40s and mm-hmm. 50s. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And, and, and there, of course, there was, um, you know, his son, Brooks, Brooks Dodge. There's a, it's some interesting stories. You know, there used to be a, a, a ski slope in front of Pinkham behind Lady Ledge and below Square Ledge. There was that. And then off of the old Jackson Road, Brook Dodge actually built a race course. I don't know how he, how he got away with it. I, I sometimes I don't look in the Forest Service records to because um, c- I'm occasionally in their files and just doing doing research. But he built this race course there, and and you could go off the old Jackson Road, and I've taken people out there, and I said, "How did he ever do this?" And 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 the Forest Service permitted it. Uh, mm-hmm. So who knows? <laughs> but wow. places. So- uh, you know, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, you know, places that I really like. Um, I won't mention some of the secrets, but um, uh, Gulf of Slides, <laughs> one of my favorite places. American Alpine Club is building a, um, a cabin up there, and I remember coming across the foundation logs log cabin in in, in, the, in the Gulf of Slides, and I was quite fascinated with that. Um, so, yeah, I just always enjoyed exploring and. And, and, and the White Mountains, and I, and I still do to some extent. Mm-hmm. So here's a, an interesting question. I, I do some volunteer search and rescue, and I was curious. Thank you. Um, as the, as, oh, oh, no worries. Thank you. Um, so as the whites were developing and the trails were developing, obviously they you know built in some stairs and uh, 
establish some rebar steps in certain areas. What's the current process uh, for, say, address in particular with the U.S. Forest Service, in particular, just dealing with some high incident areas in the whites that don't necessarily have steps or bars, but certainly need some kind of intervention because yeah. we're, we're going there all the time. So uh, could you speak to that? Well, I, I certainly can't speak for the Forest Service. I, I you know, haven't right. worked for them for a long time, but I do know that in the 1970s, there was a you know, fairly famous trail builder's name was belvin barnes um out of the bartlett area and you know he developed a lot of these techniques for um pinning steps on rocks um going up going up uh, beaver brook on uh, mount musilaki you know one of them and you know i went out there and he showed us how they were doing it and using these pnjar uh rock drills with compressors and and that you mm-hmm. know pretty fascinating stuff but uh you know at the same time you know the forest service you know certainly didn't want to create a situation where um things are overbuilt over engineered and and particularly in the cases of you know the wilderness and so there's different standards that the forest service has for maintaining trails and you know some I i know there's people that object to how wilderness trails are are maintained and versus you know some of the high use trails uh that we have um yeah we we, one thing i would say i I just wish we had a lot more money for trail crews to do a lot of the work and we got a lot Mm -hmm. of volunteers and this adopt a trail program is wonderful um you know i'd love to see a program in october where people go out and clear every water bar of you know all the leaves that have come down in, in the fall foliage, that would do so mm-hmm. much to pr- protect the trails from erosion. Um, but the the Forest Service, and you know, it's Congress that appropriates the money, and gotcha. a lot of the money they want to go for you know other projects. So trails are not uh, <laughs> the highest priority, uh, unfortunately, uh, to to take care of. So some of that. Well, that's actually. Oh, go ahead. That's actually a spur. That's a spur question. Wasn't there just a, a large amount of funds that was provided to AMC to modify some of the trails recently? Yeah, that was a congressional uh, appropriation. I guess you would um, um, call it that. Where where the congressional delegation got the money mm-hmm. for the Franconia Ridge Trail. And it's an right. amazing amount of money. And, and, and of course, then we had the Crawford path and that was funded through, you know, different, um, different sources, uh, donations and that, and, um, and some forest service money and national forest foundation money. Uh, uh, and, and so maybe that's the approach to use in the future, you know, and crowdsourcing yeah. and that, um, you know, it certainly works for these conservation groups, you know, they'll, They'll say they, they want to buy a 80 acre piece of, of land and, you know, donate to this. And uh, and they, they get the money and they often get it fairly quick. Maybe mm-hmm. what we should be doing is saying that um, a particular trail, say, the, you know, Peaked Hill Pond Trail needs a um, $15,000 to, um, you know, rehabilitate it yeah. and fix it. So maybe that's what we should do is have a Christmas uh shopping list for people to to donate money mm-hmm. you, know, you, you hate to have to have to do that because you know people pay for these um 
you know, parking permits and, and that. And, um, and a lot of that money goes to cover the cost of that. But there's never enough for all of the miles of, of trail that we have that, that's gotcha. here. And it, it gets such heavy use, too. Mm-hmm. Okay, and my last question is: um, Are you familiar with the um, the hopper at Mount Greylock in Massachusetts? Yes. Could yes. you tell me about that? Because it's always fascinated me, and um, I, you know, it's you can find it on a map. But apparently, from what I understand, there is a, a section that isn't connected to a trail that you have to bushwhack to. Is that is that the case? Yeah, and that's actually uh, some some old growth forest that that's up in that particular area there, and it's. And it's, the hopper is really more like a, a you know a glacial cirque type feature um, mm-hmm. on that highest mountain in, in Massachusetts. So um, yeah, there's there's a lot of logging that was done in that area, but there's a lot of lot of forest in in western Massachusetts in the Berkshires that that have a lot of old growth in it. Hmm. A guy by the name of Bob Leverett uh, discovered a lot of this, and there's Mohawk Trail State Forest. And there's right. thousands of acres of old growth forest that are there that are just amazing, and uh, oh, that's great. Yeah, Bob Leverett's going to be one of the speakers at the old growth forest conference in uh, September 21st through 23rd. So uh, he'll be he'll be talking a little bit about the history of that area there, and so he's he's pretty familiar. Mount Wachusett's okay. got some pretty pretty interesting old growth forest too. That's uh, fascinating. Well, thank you, Dave. Uh, Mike, you can take over. Yeah, no, we kept you for an hour. I told you it was yeah. going to be like 30, 45 minutes, but it's an hour, and now we want you to come back again. I was I was hoping for about three hours, and then I'll... <laughs> <laughs> no, this is fascinating, and uh, we appreciate it so much. Um, anything you want to plug? Any any writing or books or anything like that that you want to plug? Um, no, I, you know, I would just encourage people to, uh, you know, you know the leave no trace ethic to do that and um and if we all you know picked up after each other and and just did a little bit of extra work on the side that you know the forest and the trails would would look so much better and Mm. uh you know if you see a water bar and it's starting to silt in just use your heel and, and dig it out and um and that thing will last a lot longer so. Yeah, yeah. And I think that what I learned today is I always tell people, like, make sure you look behind you when you're going uphill. And I, and I always tell people, like, you know, you don't want to miss that view. But when I'm, what, I'm, what strikes me from talking to you is that what we should also be doing is looking to our left and our right as we're on the trail to try to see if we can find those old growth forests. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, looking for those big trees, those old trees, and also those dead trees that are yeah. there and there's, there's, there's life in, in dead trees. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I think that's a good way to end it. And uh, David, I think again, uh, we appreciate you coming on and uh, we'll definitely be back in touch and hopefully get you on again. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. And we're back 60 minutes later. <laughs> we're back. So what do you think? Awesome. Awesome. I couldn't believe, like, I I, uh, I loved hearing the, the stories about, like, you know, what the early days of the White Mountains are like. I loved hearing his stories about, like, being in the huts and working for the AMC back in the late 60s and the Cotton Railroad disaster. It's, it's uh, awesome stuff. 
pretty neat. And it, yeah. you just don't realize that you're surrounded by all this history and especially these gigantic trees. I was so glad he was open to sharing with us all those locations that we should be aware of where you can see these massive, massive original trees. So it was a, that was a great talk. We'll definitely have him back. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. And um, I'm de- I'm going to be like rubbernecking left and right every time I'm on a trail now looking for some of these older forest old growth sections. But there's not a lot of them out there, but it was really interesting to hear about it. Mm, yeah, for sure. And uh, keep an eye out for that event at the museum too. That sounds like a great time down at Plymouth. Yeah, so. we'll put that in the show notes and on our social media when we when we get more info. Yeah. All right, cool. So last sponsor, and then we have Search and Rescue. So it's 48 Peaks Alzheimer's. Hike to fight Alzheimer's with 48 Peaks, a fundraising and awareness event for the Alzheimer's Association. Hike one of New Hampshire's 4,000 footers or create your own adventure. Consider joining us this summer or during the fall foliage season. Together, we will paint the mountains purple and raise vital funding to advance the care, support, and research efforts of the Alzheimer's Association. Our hope is that one day, Alzheimer's will be nothing but a memory. Learn more at alts.org, right slash 48 peaks. search and rescue segment here so we've got one story that is a national story here so this is Mm. um out of where is this located this is from this the one from stash that he submitted yes yeah he was in the la plata mountains northwest of durango colorado so Mm -hmm. this is a um you know, it's one of these scenarios where it's, it's really difficult. So this is a, a, a search for an ultra runner that the search has combed over 12,000 acres in the La Plata Mountains. So gentleman's name is Ian O'Brien. He went missing um, and they've been looking for him, it looks like, for um, about two weeks here. So yeah. he had set out on June 24th to scout a path up this um, Hesperus Mountain from the west side of the range. He summited, uh, but no one's seen or heard from him. Uh, The gentleman has epilepsy and was carrying his medication. Friends and family suspected a Caesar likely left him uh, the experienced survivalist disoriented or incapacitated. So, unfortunately, it's a risk. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. There was a footprint found in Owen Basin uh, the morning after O'Brien went missing, but other than that, there's been no evidence of his whereabouts, so they've been searching for him for like two weeks. Um, there's a big unofficial search going on uh, by his girlfriend and his friends, so it sounds like he's sort of a, um, the guy's a field guide for open sky wilderness therapy and a camp counselor, so I think he's got a lot of outdoor connections. I uh, spent most of the last six years in southwest Colorado, but recently moved to Page, Arizona. Um, so he's got a lot of connections, and they've all mobilized. So you get about 25 to 80 volunteers at any one point in time. Many of them didn't know O'Brien, but knew friends of his. Um, so they were meeting daily, but unfortunately, 
uh, by the time this article was written, July 11th, they called off the search. So, yeah, sad story. But it's just one of those crazy, risky things around like solo hiking, but you're epileptic, and yeah, um, you know, there's about ten pe. There's a small team of like ten close friends that are going to keep searching, and there is a GoFundMe account. So I'll post that. Mm-hmm. They've raised about a hundred grand so far, and I'm assuming they're paying for helicopter searches and stuff like that. Right, and as of today, um, I have not seen any update on that story, unfortunately. That's heartbreaking. I got a question for you. If I went missing and there was a search that was going on and they had to call it off, would you continue on? Oh, hell yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Thank you. No doubt. Yeah. I, normally, I would for you too, but because I'm in Massachusetts, it's a little inconvenient. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I, I no. sure would. Yeah. Yeah, no, I would too. Of course, I would for you too. So I totally understand <laughs> it. It's just, it's heartbreaking, but um, it's probably just a resource thing. Like they can't just search forever, but it sounds like it's a solid crew of people and hopefully they'll find them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. It's like there have been. Uh, big searches that have concluded and, you know, leading up to the conclusion where it was unsuccessful or whatever the outcome was, you know, myself and others would be planning to go out over the following days to continue the search just as, you know, lay people, just regular hikers to to continue. But uh, so if I would do that for a stranger, I would definitely do it for you, Mike. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, again, you know, maybe a miracle will happen, but it doesn't look good. Yeah. Um, All right. This next one is a story that, um, not hiking related, but local, there was a missing kayaker that was found deceased this week. So um, they were doing the search for, uh, I think it was like about, I think he went missing on Monday. He was with two friends and um, he was in a kayak in Whitefield, New Hampshire, which is up. It's like between Twin Mountain and Jefferson. It's in that area there. Okay. And he was with two friends. He went missing and uh, the friends basically called, uh, you know, called Fishing Game and said, look, look, we we can't find him. So um, on Wednesday morning, so they searched all day on Tuesday in a, a pond, I'm trying to remember the name of the pond, Burns Pond in yeah. Whitefield. Okay. Uh, they searched 33-year-old um, local local uh, person from Lancaster, New Hampshire, local gentleman, and they found him on Wednesday morning at 8.15, so divers recovered his body near the location where he was last seen. So um, tough, tough all-day search, and then to come back the next morning, but they did they did locate him, so... Um, no details on exactly what caused the, uh, the the accident. Yeah, it's a dangerous time to be in the water. Yeah, I mean it's a pond, so you would think it's it's not a running water issue. It's just, and he's with two friends. I don't know if there was a flotation device there or what the story is. Was alcohol involved? Does yeah, I don't it say know. anything like that. No, it doesn't say anything. It just says he was with two friends, and then they 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 separated. So. Okay. Huh. I don't know. I can tell you, like, I think that, like, if you're wearing, although it's probably warm out, but if you're wearing clothes or you're wearing, like, heavier boots or something like that, like, you can get in trouble very quickly. So, it could be anything. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, just be careful for the uh, the rivers. Otherwise, they're still raging. 
Yep. Yeah. Um, and then this next one is at Old Faithful. So Tuesday, July 11th, fishing game was notified of a hiker re- requesting assistance off falling waters in Lincoln. So 27-year-old hiker from California. Um, and again, it's sort of the same deal. Like they started their hike late, 2 p.m. They reached mm-hmm. the top of Little Haystack by 5.30. And then they were coming down... Um, below Cloudland Falls around 7.30 when, when the gentleman slipped. Right. And Fishing Game Press release says, you know, this has historically been a common area for people to be overcome by the terrain and wet conditions. So mm-hmm. uh, crew hiked up about a mile to the location, carried him down the steep, wet terrain. Um, so started the hike at 2. The call came in at 7.30. They got him in an ambulance by 11.20. So, mm. um, and I think it was pretty rainy all week, so they probably were dealing with crappy conditions yeah fortunately for rescuers it was below some of the trickier terrain up above cloudland falls yeah exactly they at least got down below into that shelf there so that's not Mm. as bad i guess right i still don't know how they maneuver people down that section (laughs) as you're going down like that's so steep and so sketchy which one are you talking about the cliff before the last crossover (laughs) Like when you're when you're coming down um, on the right hand side of the falls, mm-hmm. as you're coming down, you're on the, the right hand side of the falls, and you go down that really steep, steep section with the steps built in. It, yeah, and where it yeah. leads into um, no, it's even before that. It's above the steps, but then it leads into the bottom section of Cloudland Falls. Right, right. Yeah, generally those areas are using blaze. So if you notice, there are one or two trees that are available. So they'll rope uh, rope around the trees with blaze and um, strapping and whatnot. And we'll have that as a, as a backup. Um, and it's generally, super uncomfortable for the people that are in the litter too, because they're just probably pointing right down. Oh, it's terrifying. Absolutely yeah. terrifying. Um, yeah. And it is super, super slippery just for all the rescuers. So we'll generally do what they call a handoff. So we line people up on both sides for 20 feet straight and just pass the person down, uh, hopefully without slipping and losing one of the rescuers. But that whole section, that is just the most difficult area. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, it's always fun. Excellent. Well, we got another one here on Welsh Dickey, and this is a 45-year-old gentleman from another one from California and his son. Um, So they started up early morning, 7.30 on Welsh Dickey on Wednesday, July 12th. And uh, they summited. They were coming down Dickey Mountain Trail, and the gentleman slipped and fell backwards, injuring his lower leg. Hmm. So injury was severe enough to warrant a carryout because the gentleman couldn't walk, so... Um, they had reached him. So they started the hike at 7.30. He called at 9.50. They got to him at 11.10, and then they carried him out about two miles to the trailhead. He got he arrived around 1 p.m. and then took private transportation to um, Spear Memorial Hospital in Plymouth okay. to get evaluated. So yeah, pretty standard. Yeah, I, I couldn't make that one. I was working. Yeah, good for it's them like for a, starting early. It's my house. I'm right here. I know. Could have been saved by Stomp. So, um, and then this next one is Bald Mountain and Antrim. Where is that? There's so many Bald Mountains. Do you know which one this is? I have no clue. I'm not sure where Antrim is. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, who's Bennington, Peterborough. Uh, I don't I, know. Yeah, I have no clue. Not too familiar. Well, this guy was on Bald Mountain and Antrim 
on July 15th, and he got dizzy, weak and dizzy. So 70-year-old gentleman from New York City, and he was on the Tudor Trail on Bald Mountain. So local fire departments came uh, to help him out along with a conservation officer, and they gave him water and had him eat some food. He didn't bring anything with him. Uh, so he was given water from another member of his hiking party. And I don't know why the why they had to wait for the police to suggest that. But uh, after resting for a short time, they encouraged him to keep moving under his own power. And he was able to get back to the trailhead by 4.10 p.m. And it was determined that he was hiking with a group of friends and did not bring any water or food for himself despite the warm conditions. So, okay. Um, Peterborough, New Hampshire. So I'm looking at um, it on a map. It looks like it's closer to the southwest New Hampshire, down by Monadnock, that range area. Okay. Yeah. Sounds like he's an older guy, didn't bring any food, didn't want to bother his hiking friends to tell him that he needed to drink some water and got a little dizzy. So, yeah. So, okay. and so uh, and I have to laugh on these things that on the Facebook post because our friend George Pelletier, who was on like I think like episode thirty five or something, like he's keeping a running tally now. He's like, we now have a total of thirty seven hikers rescued this year, only two of which have purchased a hike safe card. So <laughs> there he goes. So that's funny. really funny. It's so funny. And then like some of the some of the people we know that they'll, they'll, they'll chime in and they'll be like, please build George Pelletier for this rescue. Oh, I've seen those actually. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. really funny. Yeah, George is a good sport though. He's a good guy. Um, <laughs> hiker assisted down Amanusik Trail. So this is another one. We're busy. This another, is a busy season for search and rescue. Tough trail um, for rescues. I'll talk about Amanusik in a minute, but Massachusetts woman became dehydrated on July... 14th, so Friday, July 14th, 58-year-old Veronica Hagerman of, uh, I usually don't give the names, but I screwed up. Sorry, Veronica. Attleboro, Mass, um, took the Cog Railroad to the summit of Mount Washington with her husband. Oh, yeah, this is a funny one. Not funny, but, like, interesting. So they took the Cog up, and then... Curious. This was definitely the husband's idea, I can guarantee you. (laughs) Then they decided to hike down via the Crawford Path to Lakes of the Clouds AMC Hut where they ate lunch. After finishing lunch, they continued to hike down the mountain by taking the Amanusik Ravintra. Definitely the husband's idea, and the the wife's probably going to be mad at him. So they were attempting to hike back to their vehicle that was parked at the Cog Railroad. So, okay, they're going the right way. Um, The wife becomes dehydrated and felt sick. So the husband calls 911. I just would love to like understand like the conversation they're having at 7.45 at night oh, yeah. when she's not feeling it and they got to call 911. Panic. So the call prompts a response from the fishing game. Conservation officers requested assistance from AMC to hike some fluids and food down to the lady in an attempt to get her moving and avoid carrying her down the mountain. So the AMC employees from Lakes of the Clouds Hut were able to reach the hiker and give uh, food and fluid to her, and the volunteers had to leave all the supplies with Hagerman and hike back to Lakes of the Clouds to avoid a pending lightning storm. Wow. Oh, this husband is in the doghouse. Um, so as the volunteers headed back up the mountain, leaving the supplies, a conservation officer and three twin mountain ambulance members hiked up the trail from the Cog Railway and met uh, met them around 11 p.m., she was given more fluids and food after having clear vitals. She was assisted down using trekking poles. So they end up getting out at 120. Ooh. So. That's a long night. That's a long night. It's going to be a long week for the husband after that one. 
Mm. Interesting though. The uh, that must be policy for AMC. Yeah. Regarding lightning. Huh. Yeah, I mean it makes sense. Sure. So. Yeah. Yeah. So wow. it is. Fun- it is funny the the person on this on this post that makes the comments to Bill George. He's like, okay, on this one, skip Bill Billing George. They should be billed on their own. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, it's funny comments. It's not funny. I mean, it is like. You know, it's scary and it's definitely like dangerous out there. Um, people just, I guess, they don't do their research. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, anyway. Anyway, but um, but sure. it is busy season. There's a lot of search and rescues going on. There's a lot to learn here. So think through, read those. Uh, I'll post these all in the show notes. Read through them. Think through what you wouldn't want to do to avoid being on these uh, these news releases and we will catch you in episode 115 that's right all right have a good weekend everybody thank you for listening if you enjoyed the show you can subscribe on apple podcasts spotify podbean youtube or wherever you listen to podcasts If you want to learn more about the topics covered in today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information at slasherpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until then, on behalf of Mike and Stump, get out there and crush some mega heats. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fish and game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots, and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words that describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Neeland, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared. And I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all.